Hi, my name is Aisha Small. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Youth and Education podcast, where I interview interesting guests to explore developments in education, research and policy that affect young people, primarily in the UK. This podcast is brought to you by the Youth Think and Action Tank, LKM Co. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome to 2018. This is the first episode of the LKM Co. Youth and Education podcast this year. And it is number 14. In this episode, it is a research roundup. And my colleagues Anna and Sam talk about child poverty, uh, adoption and looked after children, and also funding and quality in FE. Hope you enjoyed the episode. I know that Sam and Anna had a great time making it. And look forward to your comments and points and tweets and everything else thanks very much oh by the way and also don't forget to sign up to our newsletter so go to the links in the show notes and find out more about us bye oh i especially love the bit where sam uh, does a nice geeky thing and says well from a methodological point of view which is part of the reason why we love sam time to dive in LKM co-believes society should ensure all children and young people receive the support they need to make a fulfilling transition to adulthood. Find us at lkmco.org. Can we listen to it now? So hello, we are here for this Research Roundup podcast. I'm Anna and this is... Sam. Hi, Anna. <laughs> Good morning. Um, so you've got three reports that we're going to talk through today, um, in some ways linked, but should we talk yeah. about the first one? Because I think it's a really, it's quite a juicy one, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, this is a really interesting and important read. Um, this was a piece on living standards, poverty and inequality in the UK um, from the Institute for Fiscal Studies. Um, and as with many IFS pieces, this was kind of a work of projection and looking forwards. Um, so I like a lot of their stuff because they're not just focusing on what we can say with existing data or what's happened mm-hmm. this year, but also looking ahead five, ten years uh, and longer to see where things might be going based on what we know at the moment about new changes to tax and benefits, other kind of elements of fiscal policy. This is in some ways quite far removed from the world of youth and education research, but it's also an interesting read because it shows how um, the intricacies of how the government runs the economy have really stark impacts on on young people and because children and young people don't pay tax and and access a lot of public services directly necessarily it's I think we sometimes forget about them um, when we talk about these kind of macroeconomic issues but actually um, you know when uh, when the government changes aspects of economic policy young people are sometimes impacted on as a as a specific group quite starkly and this is what this report shows and this is very timely isn't it because universal credit is just about to be rolled out um there's a reconsideration of the way that well it's a consultation at the moment isn't it for how free school meal um kids might be assessed and so i think it'll be quite interesting Mm. in terms of the implications for what benefits young people will receive based on how universal credit is being rolled out Mm. Um, how is child poverty defined so a child is in poverty if they live in a household which is in poverty, I suppose that's the <laughs> yeah, first okay. thing. So it's, it's a kind of a, we start by looking at households that are in poverty and then yeah. the children that are within those households that are in poverty. 
Um, there are kind of two ways of, there have always historically been two ways of looking at poverty. There's kind of absolute poverty where you say, okay, we're going to fix the poverty line at uh, a fixed amount of money or income. Um, anyone who falls below that is, is in poverty. And that might not change. It might, it might change with inflation, but it, it, won't, it won't necessarily change from year to year. Um, things like, uh, those definitions tend to be used a lot in kind of development policy. So less than a dollar a day, people living on less than a dollar a day. Okay. Are in and it's poverty. quite easy to understand as well, I write it. Yeah, it tends to be a bit more tangible. Even, yeah, direct. Even I, I imagine it's a lot more nuanced than that, but you, know, you can at least say, right, this is the headline figure. Anyone below that, we consider that. Yeah, definitely. Okay. And it also has a strong kind of moral sense into mm. it. Like there are just certain amounts of resources that everyone should have access to. Um, then there are relative measures which, uh, which take, well, specifically in the UK, we talk about households whose income is less than 60% of median income. So basically, if you arranged all the incomes that people earn in the country, mm-hmm. found the per- uh, from smallest to largest, found the person in the middle and looked at just over half, so 60% of what they earn, mm-hmm. that's the line that we draw. And so obviously that will change every time people's incomes change. So for instance, in around that middle in point of the distribution, the median, um, if everyone gets a little bit richer, their incomes go up, then that amount below which we talk about people mm. being in poverty will also go up mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, so that's the, the broad gist of kind of absolute and, and relative. Oh, that's really helpful. And, and for, I mean, obviously, when I was teaching, mm. and I taught in pretty deprived community in London, South East London, and then in Norwich in a proper comprehensive school that had, you know, pr- pretty affluent uh, young people right through to those very much in poverty mm. and I'd sort of you know what what are the kind of things that we would see in, in the education world how how does poverty present itself I mean I've, I've got a few things from my experience but mm. obviously we could talk about child poverty but what might it actually look like if you see what I mean yeah I mean you know you know more than me having worked frontline in, in the classroom um there's I from a, from a research point of view, actually, mm. that question taps into something really important about the, the measures that we... So mm. people who don't teach and see this stuff frontline, yeah. what, what's, how do they access it? What measures or proxies or indicators yeah. do they use? Um, and in some sense, I guess, free school meals, yeah. you know, people premium eligibility, which all teachers will be well aware of and they will know in their school that kids who are eligible mm. for premium, that's um, probably quite a close, a close estimate. That's... I mean, that's, that taps into families and children who are eligible for things like income support. doesn't necessarily mean those families are in poverty, so they're not, they're not the same thing. It'll mean they're on low income, but whether they're in poverty, and I guess this is, a bit, from your perspective, that... Yeah, it and it's no, obviously it's that classic thing of how do you capture the anecdote and, and, mm. and make it, and see whether it's something beyond just my own experience. And you can we generalise from the particular? Mm. Not always, but... Um, certainly in instances where you have children who are turning up who clearly aren't able to have a proper diet and clearly, you know, whether it's schools that have washing machines so that you're able to at least help young people come in where there's not... So just as a very very ridiculous example, um, Mm. someone who was missing certain days because they were only able to share certain items of clothing with their siblings... For example, so they were too embarrassed to come in when they weren't properly in uniform because they knew they'd get in trouble for that. Mm. So sometimes it's really difficult, actually, but there's a few kind of <coughs> warning signs. And 
probably child protection issues actually that, that go hand in hand. So that's not always to say poverty equals these kind of issues. But um, where there are things that you have to dig deeper, as someone who's got safeguarding and, and children's welfare on their on their table, on you know, in, in their responsibility. Mm. Um, so the, the report talks about the increase in child poverty, particularly affecting the most deprived fifth of the country. Mm. When I hear these kind of stats, I'm always like, oh, and where is that? I just mm. want to know. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing it's probably not London so much, or it might be parts of London, but mm. can you tell me where some of those areas were? Yeah, so, so the report, I guess the starkest finding from the report in relation to children and young people is that the IFS predict that the proportion of children in, in relative poverty is going to go up. So over the next, uh, well, uh, by 2021, mm-hmm. so over the next four years, uh, the proportion is going to go up from about 30% to 37%, which is really quite, uh, that's a fairly big yeah. jump. That, that will include uh, many, many more children and young people. Um, <clears throat> deprivation measures are calculated at a really, really small, literally kind of small neighbourhoods of about a thousand households. But what we can do is talk about where we find kind of cities, towns, areas where the, a large the largest proportion of those little areas are in the most deprived mm-hmm. parts of the country. Um, as large concentrations in uh, kind of provincial cities outside London, actually, that's mm-hmm. where, on a city scale, um, so Liverpool, Birmingham, um, and the authorities around Birmingham, authorities in the outskirts of Manchester, London itself has a lot of the most deprived parts of the country, but taken as a whole city, it doesn't come up there mm-hmm. um, high in the ranks. Also, London, talking about your, the context you taught in, for instance, I yeah. think there'll be teachers in, um, talking about the kind of local context, there's very deprived areas in central London, but also right on the outskirts, and then a kind of belt in between the two that's less deprived, and it'd be interesting from a, the perspective of teachers how that poverty or deprivation looks different. Mm. And I think the London effect in terms of recruitment is a really interesting one as well, because if we know that one of the biggest drivers of outcomes for young people is the quality of teaching and learning and the quality of leadership it's much harder to recruit say for example if you're just on that inner outer London London border cusp of, mm. of salary um, you know, why wouldn't someone drive 10 minutes down the road to get an extra few grand on their salary mm. um, how can you market yourself as a school that you know offers less but maybe you can offer more of a CPD offer mm. it's, it's interesting in terms of how you can mitigate some of the effects of child poverty through offering an excellent educational experience even when you're in some of those areas of deprivation. Yeah. Um, so, what kind of rec- does the report have any recommendations about how to how to mitigate this this growth of child poverty? Not really. It's more of a descriptive piece with ah. some really important, well calculated projections of where where we think we're going. Mm. Um, it does flag that some of the most significant factors behind. Um, the relative reduction in incomes of lots of families with kids is from changes to uh, tax credits and mm. universal credit. And there's this kind of there's a two-child two cap that came in in um, April. Um, broadly speaking, once you've for every additional child after two, families will lose um, a certain proportion or the, the the amount of extra mm. from the welfare estate they could get before they they won't now get, which has raised some really interesting questions about. The morality of that, the incentives of that, um, you can see the thinking behind it in a sense, but personally I think it's quite, uh, I think it's kind of morally dubious doing that. We're not logical beings in how we make our decisions either, are we, in terms Mm. of, I can't imagine someone saying, look, 
we're not really going to have a third because there's a two-child cap here. Yeah. I mean, obviously, finances massively come into those family decisions, but mm. sometimes there are different circumstances that mean that yeah. it's... Um, it's a different question for different people. Yeah. It's, again, it's hard to generalise the mm. policy in that respect. And also for me, like it raises a really interesting question that comes in in a whole... It comes in, in other areas of research from children and young people in education, for mm. instance, kind of school choice and selection and, and neighbourhood level stuff, in that it's parents making these decisions, not mm. the children themselves, but it's the children who will be affected. So mm. children have no... Uh, no responsibility or, or no power over the circumstances of their birth. That's the kind of the simple fact of, of childhood for all of us. Um, and yet this will, particularly in families that are already large and therefore more likely to be in poverty, this policy will place each of those additional children and all of their siblings under more hardship than, than previously would have been the case. And I think that is a very difficult thing for the government to be able to justify, even if it's part of a broader range of measures to try and incentivise work for adults, make work pay for adults. Is, well, and also there, there is an issue where, you know, recently childcare has been rolled out to 33 hours, um, which is fantastic if you're a working parent. Mm. But again, you need, it, it only really benefits those people who are already in work and, and relatively affluent. They get a great mm. break from that. You know, they do get a lot of money back, but it's a case of how how that then impacts on those people who are actually finding it much more difficult to access the workplace and the impact it has on their children. Mm. Um, some, I'm just thinking, but I reckon a piece of research for us is to look and map those uh, deprived areas of the country against the opportunity areas that um, Justine Greening is pushing forward mm. with. It might be quite interesting to spot yeah. where there are correlations. Mm. Um, is correlations the right word? Hang on. Where there are links. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, should we move on to the next uh, piece of research? Yeah, why not? We've got adopted children and exclusion from school. So, talk me mm. through this one, Sam. This was a bit of research um, from Adoption UK. Um, they are a body that represents um, adopters and, and children who, who are adopted. Um, there's a really interesting piece of research looking at rates of exclusion for children who are adopted um, compared to their peers. And it found, the headline finding is that um, adopted children appear to be excluded at a rate of just over 20 times that of the general mm. population, obviously quite a stark statistic. Um, for me, two things kind of jumped out from this report. The first is that, unsurprisingly, that's kind of broadly in line with what we already know about looked-after children more broadly as a category of, of young people, um, the difficulties they face in the education system um, and the poor transitions they make from school into work. Um, and they're their poor experiences of school mm. in general. Um, also, um, with a, a drier hat on, yeah. it raises some interesting kind of methodological questions as a researcher because um, adopted children are one of those examples of a relatively small group within mm. the, the national population of, of children and, and pupils. Um, it means that in things like the National Pupil Database of the school census... Um, you know, the annual survey or the annual kind of data collection point of all children in the education system, they they make up a small, a really kind of small proportion of that of that pupil population. That's just a fact. You know, there's there's not many of them. Mm. Um, we at the moment there's not actually a category for adopted children. So we know about looked after children from the national people database. We don't know specifically about um, the circumstances, the attainment, for instance, of 
adopted children. And adopted children are included in that um, looked after children measure, aren't they? Yeah. But these guys are arguing that they would rather it would be separated out. Yeah, they should be split out. Mm. Um, and so this was a piece of sur- this was a survey survey based piece of work um, with about well with which captured about two thousand adopted children, which mm. I think I think there are around five thousand adopted children in the UK at the moment. So it's a, it's a pretty good proportion of, of all of those. But um, their survey flagged that 21 of those children had been um, permanently excluded in the last academic year, which is a relative, a 20, you know, we're talking about 21 mm. young people. If kind of given the noise around that number, yeah. a relatively small change in that figure would lead to quite a big change in, in that overall proportion that had been excluded. And that, broadly speaking, it raises some really, it raises that really important flag that surrounds all research into small, often very marginalised groups of young people, that they're often the hardest to, to know about. And even once we do know who they are, it can be really hard to get reliable reliable data. Not to say that this study isn't reliable. Um, it looked like a really good, earnest effort to get a sense of what the picture looks like. Um, but, yeah, as a researcher, it's, it, did, you know, it, it, it did make me realise how hard it can be to get accurate statistics on these on these small groups. Yeah, and I think I came to it with a similar similar head as you. Mm. When I looked through it, I th- actually, I came to the conclusion that, well, fair play to them for giving something that's very tricky a good go. And mm. in, their, in their recommendations, they subsequently say, we're aware that this is a self-selecting group of people. That's why we would really recommend that the DFB gather more data on this in a really mm. robust way. Yeah. Um, so actually, you know, we, we work with quite a lot of small organisations giving it a good go to try and get something started and get a bit of momentum and, mm. and fair play to them for flagging up some of the issues with what they're presenting as well as, um, well, as, well as some of the issues that it highlights as well. Mm. Um, what are the kind of pros and cons of introducing a separate measure? Are, you know, what, I, I can think of a couple in terms of it's already difficult to get information from schools so to ask for more, like the, basically mm. the, the, the less complications, the less different measures you have, the easier it is for schools to be compliant in the data that they give you. Mm. So that's, you know, kind of a, a bit of a difficulty in asking for more. But, uh, you know, <coughs> what is there around um, adding a new category? Would it be helpful or not? Or what do you think? Yeah, I, I, you rarely lose anything by adding another category to a, good, to a bit of data collection it's, mm. it's just about the cost the cost of doing that mm. I think there's a pretty strong case for for collecting data on a specific group of young people um, not least it encourages us to there's always a problem of looking at a, a bit like with kind of coarse definitions of ethnic groups mm. if they're kind of clumped together rather than being fully kind of disaggregated it encourages us to look at young people in quite a crude Way and what this report suggests is that we know that looked after children um, have a particular set of circumstances surrounding them which which appear to make their transition through school really difficult. But this report argues that even within that mm. group, um, in a way, you know, we shouldn't think that we've, we've we're kind of getting towards a solution that might be targeted towards all looked after children. They're suggesting that things might be particularly acute for groups within there. Mm. Um, and I mean, this is. Um this is a recommendation that we come across quite often, isn't it, in different work that we do. So the, the work that um, the team did on Gypsy, Roma and Traveller young people, mm. um, the fact that 
for example, Roma, Roma young people would feel that actually it's quite discriminatory for them to be classified with gypsies. They don't, they, they wouldn't associate with that term. So anytime they're asked to ascribe to being GRT, they won't. So we don't get that category for them. It's a, it's quite a simple way that you could actually just just spread these terms out and get a lot more useful data on people's experiences, particularly for a group that is, I think, one of the most marginalised in society. Yeah. Um, Cool. Well, that's really helpful. Um, shall we think about our last one, our last piece of research roundup today? Mm. And this is like, I always think of Effie, poor Effie, as like the ugly stepsister of, um, of the education world. I'm not going to push my metaphor too hard there because ugly stepsisters are pretty mean. Effie is not. Effie does a lot <laughs> of mopping up as yeah. the kind of kids that are troubled through their mainstream schooling and then go off to college and we go, ah, I hope they do well. Mm. And for those people working in FE, especially, so for example, our safeguarding consultant, Lisa Pollitt, she used to work in one of the, a really tough FE college in Cambridge. Mm. And the level of vulnerability of some of those young people required a huge amount of funding, a huge amount of resource and a huge amount of care, mm. none of which was really able to be present at that time. And I, knew she, I know she found it a very difficult role. What's this report? Well, there's there's a couple in here, isn't there? So yeah. What are we what are we looking at here? So, I um, quite recently, you know, as a team, we flagged that um, in the sector more needs to be done on FE, but that includes us. You know, we mm. need to be doing more to mm. to dig around in FE, see what's going on. Um, so as I was doing that, I was kind of pulling out some things that surprised me as I kind of got myself better grounded in FE. Um, I went to an FE college myself to do my ah, to do my A-level. Ah, so it's also like a personal. Yeah. As I was looking at data, I was kind of you know looking back at the college I went to, um, which appears to have fallen on hard times, mm-hmm. which was a shame. Um, but so the first one, the first thing that jumped out to me is the kind of the difference um, in the proportions of schools as opposed to FE colleges that are judged good or outstanding by Ofsted. Um, so it's something that the FE Week reported recent reported on recently, but. Um, Ofsted's annual report that's coming out next month um, will show that the proportion of FE colleges judged good or outstanding has dropped to 69%. Mm-hmm. I think amongst schools, the proportion of schools that are good or outstanding is somewhere around 85%. Yes, so it's higher. Yeah. Okay, right, maybe even higher than that. So that's quite a big difference. Um, so that in itself is interesting, potentially worrying. And again, of course, that sits against the backdrop of... Um, quite swinging cuts to FE budgets. So of all the other phases in the UK education system, it's FE that you just can't really deny it. It's been clobbered. So um, since 1990, real term spending on FE has gone nowhere. It's, mm. We're funding it at the same level we were in real terms. Basically, we're funding ago. it in a similar format in the way that it was when my dad, Peter Trithewi, was at the height of his FE fame in <laughs> Bromley College. Right. <laughs> And he was, you know, even then I think he was starting to feel the bites. And then by the time he retired, um, it was a really tough mm. context to work in. And it still doesn't feel like things, if anything, things have become more gruelling, mm. especially with the addition of English and maths retakes. Um, because to find quality English and maths teachers who were willing to teach in an FB environment, particularly when there's those kind of cuts, it's really tough. Yeah. Um, so I can, I can understand why they're struggling, frankly. Mm. Um, I wanted to pick up on this point that Amanda Spielman is refusing to rule out a causal role of funding cuts. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, so there's a statement um, uh, responding to 
to to what's going to be in the Oscars and your report about the proportion of FE colleges that mm. go outstanding. Um, yeah, she, it's pretty clear that she, she refused to rule out a link between the level of FE funding and and what we find when we inspect quality, which I thought was quite quite strong. Fair play. No, and she chooses her words very carefully, mm. so it's it's good to know that she hasn't ignored the impact while also not saying oh it's definitely this Mm. Um, I think that's a really interesting because it's always it's always possible to argue that quality will be boosted with additional funding and it probably will Mm. although whether that's an efficient way of boosting quality you never know but it's you look at the figures on education spending and it just you know in pretty categorical terms Mm. we we are choosing as a society to spend a lot less Mm. on FE than we do on other phases of education, despite the fact that we're, and I think rightly, kind of loading more onto FE or seeing the value of FE more and more, which I think is quite an exciting thing because it caters for such a fascinating array of learners at that point where, as you were saying about kind of retakes, for instance, it, it's, it gives that kind of two-year opportunity for some people to kind of re-engage with education or kind of get back on track um, before they leave at the age of 18. And I think if we're looking at the impact that potential change to T-level, you know, the move to T-levels and um, institutes of technology, like if there seems to be a welcome move towards vocational and technical qualifications from the DfE, Mm. um, I guess my hope is that there is something in terms of funding that goes alongside that. Mm. Uh, Otherwise, I think it will be a lot of noise and a lot of change, but without necessarily people having the capacity to cope with it. Yeah. Um, and in terms of funding, it's the relatively recently there was that big drop in apprenticeship starts, like a sixty over sixty percent drop in apprenticeship mm. starts, which many people are blaming on the rollout of the apprenticeship levy, which may be something that can be fixed with kind of tinkering the system. It's not necessarily that that as a model is broken, but it's one of those examples of a new policy coming out and clearly having some quite serious teething problems. But that was meant to be a way of injecting some mm. funding into the system mm. that's clearly got some way to go mm. cool well we've gone right from <laughs> kind of uh, early years and, and living standards child poverty through to adoption and fe yeah um, that's probably about all we've got time for yeah but sam thank you very much and uh look forward to meeting again in a, in a couple of weeks for our next research roundup cheers Thanks. sam cheers anna bye hey people I love making this podcast. If you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoy making it, there's a few things that you can do. One, subscribe. Press the subscribe button on iTunes or wherever you listen to it. Two, share. Share this episode with somebody who you know will find it interesting or is affected by the specific issues covered. Three, review. Write a review or leave a comment. Also feel free to contact us via the links on the show notes. Thanks a lot. Bye.